good morning. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Colossians. We're going to finish the book today after being in here for several weeks, months. I'm going to conclude this today. And then uh, next Sunday, we'll start looking toward Christmas, obviously. So we're in Colossians chapter 4, and uh, this has been one of my busiest seasons in, in my work. Uh, and then it gets a little lighter after this week, and so I don't travel near as much in December. But uh, this week I was in um, San Diego meeting with a large number of pastors and uh, spending some time with them and encouraging them. And then earlier I was in Ocean City, Maryland at the Maryland-Delaware State Baptist Convention. That time I I was able to preach and encourage pastors. And the next day they set up uh, 20-minute appointments with me. And so all day long I had pastors and their wives who spent 20 minutes just sharing their burdens and their struggles, and I was able to pray with them and hopefully give them some direction. And the week before that, I think I was in Illinois at their annual convention doing the same thing. And so it's been a very busy season traveling across the country and encouraging pastors and their families and very much aware of the, of the real struggles and the difficulties that uh, all Christians are facing these days, and the adversary is really, um, really pressing hard. And uh, so fully aware of that. And there's a little bit of this we're going to talk about in the text even today. But to set the stage again, so you'll remember, maybe this is your first time here, Paul is in chains. Literally, the Apostle Paul is in prison in Rome. It's his first imprisonment. His second one will end with his death. But he has uh, done ministry back over in Asia, present-day Turkey. And there are churches that have been planted there, and and he's writing a letter to these churches, to the to this church. The one we're reading today is obviously church at, at Colossia. But there's a second letter that went to probably all of the churches. We call that letter Ephesians, but it went to all of those churches. And so he's probably writing both of those at this time. And we looked last week how they were sent back and to be read. But last week we looked at Tychius. He was the one that carried the letters back, and we focused our entire sermon on Tychius. But today we're going to look at this other group. And remember I said it's as though Paul, when he's finishing this letter, that he, he's not writing it, he's dictating it uh, to someone. His eyesight apparently is not good, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So he's dictating this letter. As he dictates this letter, uh, he kind of, at the end of it, he, as I said, he sort of pulls together this group that are, that's around him that has supported him, that has been with him, and it's almost as though he takes a selfie of this group and sends it back to everybody back in Asia Minor and says, here are the guys who are with me. Here are my friends. Here are my co-workers. We're all in this together. And uh, But I can tell you with absolute certainty, one of the primary reasons we need the church, you need the church, is we need to be in this thing together. Absolutely. And uh, so uh, I love the fact that the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, and the Apostle Paul, who uh, had that conversion on the road to Damascus, that very Apostle Paul uh, is warmed and delighted to have people around him that love him and care for him and minister to him, and he acknowledges that he needs that, and I think that's very affirming. So, together, we're going to read about some of these other people after Tychius, but we'll begin with verse 7 of chapter 4. Tychius, our dearly Loved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant of the Lord will tell you the news about me. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know how we are, and so that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming here 
to you with Onesimus, a faithful, dearly loved brother who is one of you, and they will tell you everything here. Articus, my fellow prisoner, sends you greetings, as does Mark, that's Barnabas's cousin, whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And so does Jesus, who is called Justice. This is a, uh, it was a common thing early on that these Jewish Christians would take Roman names so that they could, they could communicate better and, and, uh, and deal with the culture better than, and make impacts more into the Roman culture. So he takes a Roman name, Justice. These alone of the circumcised are my co-workers of the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. So these are Jewish Christians that are there with him, and they are very comforting to him. And then he talks about Ephraim, who is one of you. And we heard about Ephraim at the very beginning of this book. Uh, he's the one that, as Paul is preaching there uh, in Asia Minor, uh, Ephraim is a convert. Ephraim goes and probably plants this church in Colossia. That's probably, he's probably the, the planter of that church. And he has journeyed all the way back to Rome, uh, probably because there's some challenges, not probably, but there are some challenges at this church in Colossians, some doctrinal issues that are coming up, and he wants some help and some insight, and, and so he is there, and, and he's a great and godly man. Uh, later on in another New Testament book, uh, Paul refers to him as a, as a prisoner in chains. It's altogether possible that as he journeyed back to Rome to be with Paul, to tell Paul all about what was happening at Colossians so Paul could write the letter that then would go back and, and correct the bad doctrine, it's altogether possible that he was arrested in Rome and became a prisoner there with Paul even, perhaps. And look what he says about him in verse 12. Ephraim, he is always wrestling for you in his prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. For I testify about him that he works hard for you and for those in Laodicea and for those in Heropolis. Luke, the dearly loved physician, and Demas send you greetings. Give my greetings also to the brothers and sisters in Laodicea and Denymphia and to the church in her home. After this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also at the church in the Laodicea. See that you also read the letter from Laodicea and tell Archibus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you may accomplish it. Verse 18, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains and grace be with you. Father, help us as we unpack these final words of the apostle in this wonderful epistle. I pray today, amen. Well, there's a lot here. I mean, on one hand, it looks like maybe you think there's not much here. He's just wrapping up the letter, reminding us, here's some folks with us. Tell this person hi. Tell that person hi. Uh, read the letter here, and I'm writing this in my own hand, and okay, now let's move right on to First Thessalonians. But there's really quite a bit here. We don't want to miss it at all. Let's start, if we could, let's start with Ephraim. And, and how he's praying. I love this. Look, at, look with me at verse 12. He says here that he is wrestling for you in prayers so that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. I mean, we get this picture of this lovely pastor who loves his church and loves these people, and he's so far away from them right now. And, of course, in the first century, he can't call them. He can't communicate directly. This letter is going to take a long time to get there. But what does he do? He's wrestling. He's, he's pouring out his heart. He's, he's 
caring so much for his congregation back there that, that Paul reminds them that on your behalf, he is literally wrestling and praying that God would be with you and that you would grow in the grace and knowledge of the Savior and you would be faithful and you would mature. He wrestles for you in his prayers. Just think about that word. He's not casually just remembering you before he goes to bed at night. He's not just casually remembering you before he says the blessing for the food. Here the man is with Paul, ministering to Paul, but he's wrestling this. He understands the spiritual warfare that's going on, and he's pleading with God. I mean, I'm, I'm sure most of us in this room, we would acknowledge we do not wrestle in prayer nearly enough. We don't really understand the, the power and the, the, the opportunity that prayer is. As we've said before, it's this amazing thing that God gives the believer in Christ that we're able to literally punch through time, space, and eternity and leave this realm in which we are and actually reach the throne of Almighty God right now. And He hears the prayers of those who are His children and He responds. Prayer, as Piper says, is wartime communication. It is so vitally important. I mean, Ephraim is not just wasting time here. He's not just going through some sort of motion. Paul isn't just flippantly saying, hey, he prays for you every now and then. Paul reminds him he is wrestling. He is, he is absolutely pouring his heart and his soul and his strength into praying for you. He can't be there with you. He can't talk to you, but he can pray for you. Dear saints, sometimes that's exactly what we need to do. There are things in our lives we can't change, circumstances we can't make different, people we can't make behave the way that we should, things that are far distant in our life, but we can certainly take this wonderful picture of our dear Christian brother and we can wrestle with these things in prayer. We can just not let go. There's this sense of where he's just gripping on and he's not letting go. Wouldn't you love to know that there's somebody wrestling for you in prayer every day? Wouldn't that be a great thing to know? Wouldn't it be great to know we wrestle for one another in prayer every day? And I know given social media, it's so easy to say, hey, I'm praying for you. And yet, to be frank about it, sometimes it's so difficult to really pour yourself into that. There's nothing about prayer that appeals to our flesh. It requires a discipline and a commitment. And apparently this dear brother, he has it and Paul recognizes it. And Paul tells them, man, he wrestles for you in his prayers. And what's he wrestle for? So that you can stand mature and fully assured in everything God wills. He wrestles for the believers that they would be matured up Christians who will not waver, who will not be weak, who will not cave in, but will stand for everything that God wills, the good and the bad, the, the pleasant and the unpleasant. You see what I mean? He's not just asking that the church grow and not have any trouble and not have any heartache and God remove all the obstacles. No, he's asking that the believers there in, in the Colossian Christians are able to stand firm and grow in their faith and be mature no matter what happens. That's the way we should pray. Most of the time, our prayers are sort of, God, take all the bad things away and only bring the good things. Well, many times, the bad things are there to edify us, to take away those things that aren't Christ-like, to cause us to love him more and to lean into him more. And for reasons we'll never understand until we get to heaven, that these things are for his purpose. And sometimes we just are like the disciples when they saw the multitude. They said, Jesus, send these, things, send these people away. 
But Jesus had something else in mind. He was going to feed them and show the disciples how he was enough. So many times our prayer is just take all the bad stuff away. And I love the fact that the brother here prays for his church and his Christians, these Colossian Christians. And he says, I pray that they are mature and that they stand firm and that they grow up and that they absolutely are fully assured in everything God wills. The things that seem very wonderful and great and those things that Paul's in prison for goodness sakes. And perhaps, perhaps he's, if, if, Reyes, if he's not a prisoner now, perhaps he's going to be soon. But they don't question whether this is God's will, that they're in change. They understand God is sovereign. This is his will. And they want to stand firm in that. What a great picture. We have so many Christians today that we just, and I'll be first in line, we're just whiners. We're so quick to complain and to whine when life becomes difficult and challenging. And, I mean, Jesus was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up your cross every day and follow me. And I love the fact that of all the things Ephraim could be wrestling with and, and struggling with as he's praying for the Colossian Christians, he's wrestling and struggling that they would be mature and fully assured. Wouldn't you, don't you want to be mature as a Christian and fully assured regardless of what happens? regardless of what the, the, your job situation is or regardless of, of what your medical condition might be or the results of the tests that come back from the doctor? Don't you want to live fully assured, not in the things of this world, but in Christ and in God and in the future and in the hope of glory? It's what Ephraim is praying. And I would say to you this morning, if you don't get anything else out of this text, if I don't get anything else out of this text, this ought to help frame how we should pray for ourselves, for our church, and for one another. Don't just pray for things to be easy. And I would even say churches, don't just pray for the church to grow numerically. He doesn't say that. Paul doesn't say, Ephraim is praying daily that you'll double in size. Daily, that the church will just expand and have to build a bunch of buildings. Because that can be done under the influence of man. And it has all across North America. And that's why we have cities filled with churches, but cities that are more crime-ridden and more lost than ever before. And so what Paul, what Ephraim is praying for is, not that the church necessarily grows larger numerically. He doesn't even mention that. He simply says, he's wrestling for you in prayer so that you can stand mature, fully assured in everything God wills. If you don't hear anything else, if you don't hear anything else this morning, how about you and I go home this week and we focus on praying that for ourselves, for our family, and for our church, that we can absolutely, without doubt, stand mature. And absolutely be fully assured in everything God wills. Wow. What a ministry, what a testimony that would be to a world that is so uncertain, a world that is so chaotic, a world that is so disruptive, a world that is so on edge to have Christians who are mature and stand strong no matter what happens. That's what we want. I love that. Well, that's not, where, that's not all, though. He goes on to say, For I testify uh, about him that he works hard for you 
and for those in Laodicea, and for those in Heropolis. In other words, he says, this, this pastor really works hard for you. He prays hard. He works hard. He's your good servant. And then Luke, the dearly beloved physician. And this is how we know Luke was a physician. Uh, he wrote the book of Acts. He wrote the gospel of Luke. And what a great, great man of God that we're so fortunate that God raised up in this, this physician, Luke. And then Demas. Wow, not a word about Demas, right? Did you ever notice that? Talks a lot about these other guys, Tychius and, and certainly Ephraim and Luke, the dearly loved physician. And then Demas. I'm not suggesting that you or I find ourselves in one of these individuals, but I am suggesting that they are sort of indicative of those who are hanging out with Paul, maybe indicative of those who are in the church, different levels of maturity, different giftedness, different responsibilities. And then here is Demas, about whom nothing is said here except that he's there. But we do see him again in another passage of Scripture. If you want to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9. Again, at the end of the letter, this one he's writing to Timothy, his second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 9, he's making some concluding remarks about people and some things like that. So he says in verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. He's talking to Timothy. Why? Verse 10, because Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world and has gone to Thessalonica. Wow. Did you ever know that? This group where Paul brings these guys around, sort of takes a selfie and says, here are the men that are with me, and he begins to list them, and he says, and and Demas, knowing probably even then Demas was struggling. The others he affirms in some way and talks about them in some way, and Demas, he just lists his name. Demas is here. And before we're too hard on Demas and go, wow, you know, a guy bailed on Paul. I would never bail on Paul. Before we say that, you realize that it's altogether possible that hanging out with Paul, you would eventually be put in chains, right? I mean, you start hanging out with the prisoner and helping him do his work and helping him write letters and helping him strengthen the gospel for which he's in prison, and you're probably going to be looked down upon, and you may very well be put in prison. And if you're not a Roman citizen and you're put in prison, you have absolutely no rights and no hope of getting out and quite possibly could be martyred. And Demas is looking around and he sees all of this. And Paul says in 2 Timothy, he loved this world more. In other words, he just couldn't see it. It didn't look like from his perspective that this Christian life was really making any difference. Paul was in chains in a Roman prison. And these churches were scattered all across the Roman world, little tiny groups of churches, little insignificant places where if you you rode into Ephesus, you wouldn't see the big First Baptist Church on a hill. You wouldn't even probably know where it was meeting initially. It didn't seem to have any impact compared to the Roman culture that was there and the Greek culture that was there. And Demas looks at this after a while and he begins to realize, you know, Real joy, real meaning, real purpose, it must be found out there in the world. It can't be found here because these guys are just locked in a Roman prison. And again, a Roman prison didn't look like, you know, prisons we see today. It was a dungeon. It was an awful place. Demas had 
had about enough. Now, before you and I are too quick to say, boy, that would never be us. Think about, think about Simon Peter. The night Jesus is arrested, he's as bold and as brash as ever, right? He, uh, the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden. And what does Peter do? He whips out his little knife, his sword, whatever he's got, and he swings it at the soldier's head, and probably the soldier ducks, and he takes off an ear. I mean, he makes it clear that night, doesn't he? Others may desert you, he says, but Jesus, I will never desert you. I don't know that Demas ever made that kind of commitment to Christ and to the ministry of Paul, but he made some commitment. He was there. Probably at some point in our lives, if those of us in this room this morning, many of us have repented of our sin and called Jesus our Lord, we came to a place in our lives. I I trust Christ. He is my all in all. He is everything. I, I turn my whole life over to him. But then Peter realizes as he sees Jesus carried away and Jesus says, put away the sword, we're not going to fight. Peter realizes he's really serious about this. This really is not an earthly kingdom. I, I believe probably right up until that night, Peter and many of the other disciples were clearly thinking this was still going to be some kind of an earthly kingdom. I mean, Judas thought that, and when Judas realized it wasn't going to be, he cashed in and for 30 pieces of silver. So probably even as Peter pulls out that sword, he thinks, this is it. I will lead the charge. <laughs> when the earthly kingdom is set up, it'll be written about me that I was the first one. And Jesus says, put that away. And not only does he say, put the sword away, he takes the ear and puts it back on the soldier. And then what happens? Well, then Jesus is taken to these trials, and they're, 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 they're fake trials. They're made-up trials, and he's beaten beyond recognition. And he's going to be killed. And, and Peter knows that. He, he's been around. He sees what's happening. He knows, what, he knows this is a kangaroo court, and they have one thing in mind, and it's to kill Jesus. And Jesus isn't defending himself. He's not calling in thousands of angels. He's, he's actually going to die. And so the next time we see Peter there, where do we see him? We see him outside of the high priest's house, Caiaphas' house. And now what does Peter want to do? Hide. He wants to blend into the crowd. He does not want to be seen as one of them. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But have you ever wanted to blend in the crowd and not be seen as a Christian at work or among your friends? You ever not want to be singled out as one of those people, especially in the culture we live in today? Just want to be in the crowd, don't want to be singled out. And servant girl says, you're one of his. (laughs) Earlier on, he was really to take a sword and kill a soldier. Now he's frightened of a servant girl. Why? Because he realizes God's kingdom, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. And if I, if I confess that I am one of his, they're going to haul me in there with him and they're going to beat me beyond recognition and I'll probably die too. And I just don't want that kind of attention. 
So before we're too hard on Demas for leaving Paul and loving the things of this world, look pretty hard at ourselves and ask ourselves, how frequently are we a little like Peter at Caiaphas' house where we just want to blend into the woodwork? We don't want people to really single us out. We don't want our conversation to give us away. I love that where she says, your, your conversation, the way you talk gives you away. You're a Galilean. And then he cusses to say, basically, would a follower of Jesus talk like this? You ever careful what you say so people don't know that you're a Christian? You ever change the wording sometimes so because you don't want to be labeled as one of those radical people? I'm telling you, there, this side of heaven, there is a cost. And, and the reality of it is, in the 21st century, 20th century America, 19th century America, 20th century America, it was one of the only places on earth and one of the only places in the history of the church where it really wasn't very costly to be a Christian. In fact, it kind of paid you something. Go back to 1955, 1960. If you were going to be a school teacher in a city like Pleasant Hill, you were going to join a church somewhere. Because if you didn't join a church, people would think there was something wrong with you. I'm not suggesting that you were a Christian, and I'm not suggesting that kind of, of, of social Christianity is anything very good. But I am suggesting that it didn't cost us anything in that sense to be a Christian. No one would down on you in the 1960s if you were a Christian. But today... You start talking about biblical worldview and biblical truth, and it's going to be even harder and harder. You, you realize just the other day that whoever the young lady is was going to sing the halftime show for the, for the bowl game that the Salvation Army put on. She's not going to sing it unless the Salvation Army makes some contribution to LBGQT. Salvation Army, as if, I mean, we don't have time to go into that. But my point is, that it's going to be harder and harder for us. And that's why when, when, when Ephraim is praying that they would be mature Christians able to stand, that's what we need to pray. That we don't become like Demas. That we don't look around and go, well, this is the cost of being a Christian here on this earth. Here's what the world offers me. Man, I just, I think I got to go over here. I, I don't think I can do this. And the reality of it is you in your own flesh, you can't do it. That's why we have to look to Christ. That's why we have to see what is the future hope of glory, that this is not all there is, and that the, what we endure in the hardship this, of this life is well worth whatever, whatever comes our way. And lastly, as we look at this about Demas, not everybody's going to hang around. You know, sometimes as pastors and Churches, we get discouraged because people come and they go. I understand the discouragement in that, and I'm sure it broke Paul's heart. But my goodness, if they'll leave Paul, if you can sit under the personal teaching and listen to Paul and walk away, there are many who will. Was Demas ever a believer in the first place? I don't know. I don't know if he was. I don't know if he ever came back. We just know these two things about him. He's mentioned here in the text we just read where Paul makes no definition of anything about him, just his name, and then he's mentioned in Second Timothy where he has at that point left and gone back to the things of the world. And I would just want you to know this morning that it is a battle and we have to be mature in our faith because there is a price to be paid. Absolutely. I mean, you can imagine probably as Peter was sitting outside the Caiaphas house and he saw 
what was happening to Jesus. He remembered the words of Jesus where Jesus said, you want to follow me? You've got to be willing to take up your cross every day. And Peter's probably thinking, he really meant that. That wasn't just, that wasn't, I mean, he means a real cross. He means really die. And I do think there's coming a time, and it's rapidly approaching faster than any of us could imagine, where we as Christians in 21st century North America are going to have to make some decisions about are we going to pay the price it takes to follow Christ? Or are we going to want to be like Demas and say it's just not worth it? I'm going to go back to the world. I really think that's what we're facing, and I really think that's why Ephraim's prayer that we would be mature and stand and know what we know is so vitally important. Then he says, verse 16, after this letter has been read at your gathering, have it read also at the church of Laodicea, and see also that you read the letter from Laodicea. Now, if you look in your Bibles under the book of Laodicea, it's not there. So you may think we're missing a book. <laughs> Somehow or other, this letter got lost. Really, that's not true. The letter, as we said last week, the letter to the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian letter does not have any personal information in it. All these other letters talk about people in the, in the local congregations, right? The Ephesus letter is a general letter that probably went to all the churches, all seven churches in the region. The first one would have been Ephesus every time they're listed, and the last one is always Laodicea. And so what he's probably talking about here, we're confident he's talking about here, is the book of Ephesus. So when Tychius leaves, as we said last week, when he leaves that Roman jail with these, with these two documents wrapped up in his, in his coat somehow, probably wrapped in something to keep them waterproof and tucked in his coat, and he walks down these big, broad Roman uh, avenues with huge columns and glorious architecture. And here's this little man, Tychius, with these two little letters tucked in his coat written by a prisoner in Rome. No one could have imagined that 2,000 years when Rome was in ruins, these letters are still the most powerful in the world. And so he's talking here about the letter to the church at Colossia and the letter we know as the book of Ephesians. So he says, After you read this letter, read it to the gathering, have it read to the church of Laodicea, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea, the book of Ephesians. And tell Archippus, here's another little insight, whoever Archippus is, and we know very little about him, tell Archippus, pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. He's the son of Philemon, and we don't know what his ministry is, but just as a last word there, as Paul's dictating this letter, he says, and, and tell Archippus this. Pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. Archippus is not some great evangelist. He's not some great church planter. We don't know what his ministry was. But that could be said to any of you in any of these seats this morning. Pay attention to the ministry you've been given so that you'll be able to accomplish it. Because if you are a child of God and you have been redeemed and your heart has been regenerate and you trusted Christ to save you, I promise you, he's given you a ministry. You're not saved just so you can come to church an hour and a half a week and then live your life however you want. You have a ministry. You say, well, what do you mean I have a ministry? Look, I don't want you to get too freaked out by this. I don't mean you've got to pick out something and you've got to do that for the rest of your life. I mean your ministry is to live like Christ where you are. 
to simply be gracious and generous and kind and sweet and hospitable and not fuss and not fight and not be cantankerous and to love people and to care for the marginalized and do what Jesus would do, that's your ministry. People sometimes sit around and fret and stew and say, I don't know what my ministry is. You don't? Well, how about loving your brother? How about loving your enemy? How about being the most generous person on your block? How about being the most generous person in your workplace? How about being quick to pray for people and slow to criticize them? All of those things are what Christians are supposed to do. How about praying that the fruit of the Spirit would be evident in your life? Sometimes we freak out and we think, I gotta, what's my, is my ministry this? Is it that? It's just being like Christ. It's, be, it's as Henry Blackaby said, it's seeing where God's at work and joining him in it. It's being so sensitive to the people around you that when you hear people at work or in your neighborhood and you see a need and you hear a hurt, you're just quick to care for them. You're quick to love them. You're quick to pray for them. You're anxious to find ways to help them. That's your ministry, to be like Christ wherever he's placed you. You don't have to know, you don't have to know theology from one end to the other. You don't have to know systematic theology. You don't have to have the Bible memorized. You have to simply know you love Jesus and he loves you. And because he loves you, you're going to love people. And you're going to live your life differently. And you've got to work at that. This side of heaven, it's not our flesh. This side of heaven, our flesh focuses on ourselves. It focuses on what we want. Satan's constantly trying to drag us down. So Paul is encouraging this young man to pay attention to the ministry you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. So my challenge to you and to me today is just that. Pay attention to it. Because if you don't pay attention to it, it's not going to happen. If you don't focus on it, it's not just in our natural flesh, we're not going to be kind and generous and gracious and forgiving and loving if we don't pay attention to it, if we don't strive for it, if we don't pray for it, if we don't constantly preach to ourselves the gospel that says how much Jesus has done and is doing and will do for us and what we really deserve compared to what we're really getting, getting as an inheritance And rather than getting what we deserve, we get this glorious inheritance that we don't deserve. You know, Jill and I were were listening to something last night on on a a podcast that she was listening to. And I can't remember who was on there. I'll tell you who it was. But it was really great. Talking about, you know, at the last judgment where basically everything we've ever done in our life will be seen. It's true. And if you're a follower of Jesus and you've repented of your sin, it's not going to be held against you, but you're still going to, it's, it's a record of what you've done. And I love the fact in this podcast, they said, because you're going to, here on earth, we don't, even, even on earth, even when we think about it, check this out, even when we think about it, we don't fully understand how sinful we are. Even the best of us in this room, we don't fully understand how sinful we are. So without fully understanding how sinful we are, we can't fully rejoice in how great and gracious God is for removing all of that. And I do believe when we get to glory, those of us who are redeemed and we have this glimpse of our life, it's not going to be that we're going to be overwhelmed with regret for all of that. I think it's going to be we're going to be overwhelmed by, I can't believe his grace is more than enough to cover all that junk. 
And that's how wonderful he is. And when you preach to yourself that, when you realize, I don't deserve anything other than damnation from God, but I have not just received a removal of damnation, I've received eternal life. I'm his child. I'm clothed in his righteousness. I have a home in heaven. I have a purpose. I, all of those things. Then out of that overflow, I should just love people and care for people and be what Christ would be to people. Now, there may be and there will be for some of us at different times, specific ministries. I'm called to work with children, called to work with youth, called to work with the homeless, called to work in the music ministry. I'm called to help with administration of the church. That's fine. Those are great tasks that you can be called to. But trust me, every one of us in this room, if we have been redeemed and claimed by Jesus and are his, we all have a ministry. And the ministry is to simply be like him. And be salt and light in this neighborhood, in your community, in your world. To be kind, to be gracious, to be loving, to be forgiving. To be stalwart in your faith. To not be a knucklehead and not be difficult. Pay attention to the ministry. You have to pay attention to it. Take it from one who's been in ministry for 40 years. I have to pay attention to it. I have to pay attention to it. If I don't, I drift from it. And the reality of it is people like me can hide that from you for a long time. But in our heart, we know we are drifting from it. You have to pay attention to the ministry. Compare what he's saying to Archippus to what happened to Demas when Demas went back to the world. You've got to pay attention to this. You cannot just let it go. Just the natural letting it go, you and I, will we'll always run towards sin. Do you, you ever think about that? Do you, you ever drift toward, as I don't remember who said it. If I did, I'd give him credit. But did you ever drift toward holiness? We drift toward the world. We drift toward sin. We're like Demas, unless... We pay attention to it. Pay attention to the ministry that you have received in the Lord so that you can accomplish it. And I love the fact that Paul says, you can do this, young man. You can accomplish it. We think, man, I can't be what Christ wants me to be. No, you can't, but through him you can. If you'll stay focused in his word and you'll stay committed to him and you'll stay involved in a local church and you'll commit yourself daily to grow in grace, as Paul says, you know, this mortal will one day put on immorality, this mortal one day put on immortality, this corruptible one day put on incorruption. It's not yet what we will be. I mean, we're never here on this earth. We're never going to be completely perfect. We're never going to completely have arrived. But we are in a progress towards sanctification. And Paul says, I'm headed in that direction. And you can head in that direction. And then verse 18. Paul says, I'm writing this in my own hand. And wouldn't you love to have that autograph? <laughs> he probably has cataracts. I mean, you know, they couldn't fix cataracts in those days. And if you have cataracts, you're not going to be able to write, that's for sure. Or whatever he had, maybe macular degeneration. He had something probably with his eyes. So he was dictating this letter to a servant of some sort. But in order that two things, I think that it would be personal. He wanted to write his own name as, as, a, as a, a personal letter. And also authenticity. I'm signing this. This is, this is really me. I have written all this. This isn't somebody else. This is out of the influence of the Holy Spirit. 
So you get, you get both. Just that, that warm touch of the apostle as he probably has to write very large and writing his own name. And you can imagine the, imagine, imagine the, the comparison of the glorious nature of this, of this book that he wrote under the influence of the Holy Spirit, this book of Colossians. Some of the most wonderful words ever penned in all of Scripture are found here. How about this? Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, about Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things together are held. He is also the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have come to the first place in everything. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and reconcile through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his shed blood on the cross. What a glorious thing. And yet then you, you read those words, those words would be read to you as you were part of one of those churches, and no doubt you were just like we are, captivated by the richness there. And then you see the man who wrote them has to write his name in great big. He's a human, frail, broken individual like the rest of us. He's not some sort of superman, but someone that the Holy Spirit spoke to. So this combination of these amazing, powerful words that are from the influence and the direct inspiration, rather, of the Holy Spirit. And here's used this broken old man who'd been beaten five times with 39 lashes, had been stoned and left for dead, had been shipwrecked, was nearly blind, was that point in prison, but God could still use him. He can still use you too. I write this in my own hands. And then the last thing he says, remember my chain. Remember my chains. What a way to end a letter, right? Remember my chains. I'm in chains here. I'm in chains for the gospel. I'm in chains for you. He's not ashamed of it. He's, he's not proud of it. He's just saying it's what it is. Remember the cost of this letter. Remember the cost of the gospel. Remember what this has cost me. I'm in chains for this. Now, he's been with the Lord for 2,000 years. <laughs> no more chains, right? But that, that, that phrase is still so powerful to me. Paul isn't writing from a place of comfort and ease. He isn't writing from a place of prestige. He's not the president of a seminary or a school. He's not some great, big, cushy, denominational job where he's sending down great truths from above. He said, remember me. Remember these chains that I have. I'm a prisoner. This gospel is so powerful. This message is so important that I willingly Wear chains for it. Wow. Remember my chains. Old man writing with his own hands. This is my writing. I can hardly see anymore. And remember my chains. I would imagine that when they read that and passed it around, they looked at Paul's writing and read those words, remember my chains, I would imagine many of them wept. Thinking, oh. Would to God that could be my testimony. Would to God that could be my testimony. 
I've had nothing remotely close to chains that I've had to endure for the gospel. Nor probably have you. Look to the Lord today to be your strength and your sustenance. Because whatever comes your way, whatever chains or difficulties or challenges that God may have in store for you, he'll give you the grace to be with it. Because the very last thing Paul says is, his grace be with you. Paul concludes his letters that way always. It's not just like a yours truly. It's not just a, you know, see you later. It's not just, it is true that without his grace, none of this is possible. And his grace can be all. And may his grace be with each and every one of you so that you can stand firm no matter what happens, so that you can rejoice even when you're in chains, so that you can understand to be pay attention to the ministry that God has given you so that you'll be able to fulfill it. It's not done by your power or by your might. It's done by the grace of God working in and through you. May his grace be with you.